forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and SSRI connoisseur. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bi-con, bisexual icon, wink, and I'm on three different pills, baby. Which ones? I, well, maybe I lied. I'm on Lamictal, Sertraline, Seroquel, and then sometimes Clonopin. That's three and a half. Three and a half. This is Just Between Us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games and brutal honesty. We are doing Mental Health 101, a series that we are doing for Mental Health Month all of May. So we are doing eight beautiful episodes all about mental health. And today's episode is about, you guessed it, meds. Medication. Medication. What's your feelings, thoughts, questions on meds, Allison Raskin? Yeah, so I started my experience with meds pretty early on at age four. Um, I was given liquid Prozac in my apple juice. So I've been on and off meds my whole life, kind of. I was on meds uh, age four to 12. Then I was on meds age 18 to 21. And then I was on meds, I think either 27, 28, I think like 27-ish till now. And now I'm currently actually in the process of, of experimenting with going off my medication to see if I'm good without it. And if not, I'll go right back on. <laughs> For new listeners, what um, what's your damage? <laughs> I don't love that phrasing. Uh... <laughs> In a 1980s sense of the word, what's your damage? Sure. I have OCD and my therapist bills me for generalized anxiety disorder. <laughs> um, and then I've also, uh, I've had depression, but I've always had um, rather high functioning depression, mm-hmm. um, which I think is very different than than your experience of depression. Um, where I, I don't have, dep- have the- I have depression? <laughs> Sorry. I don't, I don't have the, when I am depressed, I don't have a lot of physical symptoms of depression. Mm-hmm. It is mostly um, just feelings of worthlessness, wanting to die, and then also um, not caring about anything. Sure. But I'm still like able to exercise and get out like bed. Like there's such a spectrum of how people, how it's manifested in, in people. And I think we have two very different manifestations of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I uh, have bipolar too. Uh, which was a journey to get towards because I thought that I had depression and anxiety only. And then I had, I would say like three super cute mental breakdowns. So I do experience hypomania. It's hard to explain feeling like you're indestructible, but also kind of feeling like everyone's out to get you. There's a, a, a myriad of symptoms, including like not super making sense being hyper fixated or focused on something, productivity. But then the flip side of that is the depressive um, side of of manic depression, where I do experience physical symptoms of depression that Allison alluded to. So body aches, pains, nausea, hair falling out, on top of feeling worthless and sad and and numb and all of those things and not being able to get out of bed, that kind of thing. And repetitive thoughts. And so... Uh, I am on the meds that I aforementioned listed. And, you know, Allison's situation of going on and off meds is quite different from mine in that I will probably need to 
be on an antipsychotic for the rest of my life, which is fine. They give me very vivid dreams. <laughs> I'll tell you that. They're completely, you know, OCD and bipolar are completely different completely disorders. Different. It would be like thinking you would treat the flu and cancer with the same medications. Like you don't, you know, like they're going to yes. have different treatments, which we will get into with our with our incredible guest. Our guest today is Dr. Pooja Lakshmin, and um, she's going to talk to us all about psychiatry and medication and answer questions that you guys also left on our Instagram at JBU podcast. So thank you for leaving those. And it's a really great enlightening conversation. Allison is obviously learning a lot in school and I'm along. You think so? Yeah. And I'm just just along for the ride, baby. (laughs) You're getting that education for free. I kind of am. (laughs) I kind of am. Um, But it's also nice to just like destigmatize meds and and hopefully we get into all all the things that you guys have ever wanted to know about medication. So stick around after the break. Welcome back to Just Between Us Mental Health 101. This week, we're talking all about medication. Our guest this week is Dr. Pooja Lakshman, who is a board-certified psychiatrist and writer specializing in women's mental health and perinatal psychiatry, frequent contributor to the New York Times, medical advisor to Peloton, founder of Gemma. Basically, you can find everything about her uh, if you go to her Instagram, which we will link below. Hello, welcome to the show. Hi, Gabby. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. No problem. You're, I didn't want to read your whole storied biography because <laughs> you're uh, just an icon and an expert. So uh, thank you for coming here to talk about meds, which I think is a question we get a lot on this mm-hmm. show. And it's a question I think I ask myself all the time, too, you know, having have been on and off of meds for a lot of my life. And so I guess just to start with something so broad, like what do you think are are just like kind of the biggest misconceptions about psychotropics out there? Yeah, this is a topic that I love talking about, obviously, as a psychiatrist, because there's so much stigma, there's mm-hmm. so much misinformation. Um, there's so many myths, I think, out there. And so I think, the, you know, there's a couple big bullet points or a couple big takeaways. So the one being that taking medication does not need to be a decision that defines you. You know, Mm -hmm. this is not like there, there's no such thing as a magic pill. So a lot of my patients, and that can go either way, you know, because a lot of times people are like, well, if I can just get on this right medication, if I just switch from Zoloft to Prozac, or if I try, you know, whatever XYZ thing it is, there's like this fantasy that 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 jump is going to be the magic bullet when in reality, medication really is like one piece of a puzzle, right? Mm -hmm. You still need to do the work in therapy. You still need to be sleeping. You still need to be exercising. You need all these different pieces. But the way that I think about medication, especially if you're somebody who has had like moderate to severe depression or anxiety, or if you're somebody that has like bipolar disorder, medication is going to make it possible for you to do all those other things. Like medication is going to make it possible for you to make those good choices for yourself, to be able to tolerate having those hard conversations with friends or family members or partners, um, to be able to regulate your sleep, to be able to get you to the gym to exercise because you know that you feel better when you exercise. So medication is the thing that enables all of that. And 
You know, one of the things that's really that I see a lot in my practice, because I, I do perinatal psychiatry, right? So I take care of women that are pregnant and postpartum. And, and I also see patients that are not pregnant or postpartum. But they're, you know, a lot of my patients are kind of like, well, like, I don't need medication. I just need more help. You know, I just need better friends. I just need somebody to come do my laundry. I need <laughs> someone to do my grocery shopping for me, you know? And that's not untrue, but you can't make those decisions. Like when your brain is in a very anxious place or in a very depressed state, you can't actually communicate in a coherent way to your loved ones or your family members. Because when you're depressed, you're not answering your texts. You know, mm -hmm. people are, are texting you, wanting to reach out, do things, and you're just, you know, you're in bed. So we can talk a little bit more in particular about kind of how antidepressants work in the brain. But those are some of my big bullet points. You know, it's not a magic solution. And it also isn't something that needs to be stigmatized. It's just like one tool in a larger piece of the uh, pie. I think what you're referring to is, is often called the window of opportunity. Right. So like you might have been in therapy and it, and you understand what you need to do to get better, but you're unable to execute that. And so being on the medication can sort of get you to a, a place where you're able to start to incorporate what you've learned in therapy. Is that something that you see? often? Yes, yes, exactly. So if we think about the brain, when you're experiencing depression, or when you're experiencing anxiety, we can kind of divide the brain into two parts. There's the prefrontal cortex, which does kind of like problem solving, which, you know, enables you to learn in therapy, learn better coping skills, learn how to communicate, learn how to problem solve. Um, but then when you're depressed, the parts of your brain that are feeling all the feelings, essentially those are just on overdrive, the volume's up. So if the volume is so high on those parts of the brain, it's like your cortex is sort of offline. You don't mm -hmm. have a chance to even implement the type of kind of like reframing skills or problem solving or, you know, different things that you're learning in therapy, there's no option to even do that. So what medication can do is it, it turns the volume down a little bit on the feeling part so that the problem solving part of the brain can kind of come back online and, um, help guide you and actually be able to learn because therapy really is, it's like kind of like re-education for your brain, mm -hmm. right? Learning new patterns, learning, um, some misconceptions that you've had, learning different ways of interacting with yourself and with other people. I was very excited to do this episode because I started a degree in, in clinical psychology and I went into it with a, a very pro medication. Like I started meds when I was four years old. I had Prozac in my apple juice, you know, like, <laughs> and, and so my entire life, I was under this belief that meds are unanimously supported within the mental health community only to then sort of start my program and learn that a lot of my teachers actually they're not anti-med but they're not as pro-med as I thought and and sort of taking my psychopharmacology class learning that just like while meds are the first line of defense for bipolar and schizophrenia when it comes to anxiety depression OCD there's, there's a lot of studies that suggest that meds aren't that effective for a lot of people. What are your thoughts on that? Is that something that you agree with? Do you think that people tend to think meds are more effective than they really are? Is it the placebo effect? Like, where do you land in that kind of that controversy? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, the research really shows that for mild depression or anxiety, mild to moderate depression or anxiety, 
psychotherapy actually is just as good and can Mm -hmm. be just as effective. So when the illness is not as bad, that's when medication is not as helpful. And then as we get into more kind of severe illnesses like bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, or even people that struggle with severe depression and anxiety, people that struggle with suicidal thoughts or maybe have made suicide attempts, have been hospitalized in the past, OCD that's so debilitating that you know you can't hold down a job, you can't function, those people tend to benefit more from medication because the burden of the illness, the burden of the symptoms is so much higher. So so it is true that when you're looking at kind of mild to moderate depression or anxiety, the medication isn't going to be as helpful because the symptoms themselves aren't impacting functioning as much. That being Mm -hmm. said, you know, something that I talk about on Instagram and I talk about with my patients too, is like this whole concept of sort of like high functioning depression or high functioning anxiety. Cause I do have so many patients that from the outside, you would never be able to tell because Mm -hmm. they're going to work. They're doing everything that they need to do. You know, they're posting on social media, (laughs) you know, everything looks great on the outside. But um, the amount of effort that it takes to get out of bed in the morning, the amount of effort that it takes to do all the tasks that you need to do to get through your day is much higher than it would be if that person did not have mild depression or mild anxiety. Um, And so sometimes being on a low dose of an antidepressant along with therapy can be something that really makes a big difference in how that person feels going about their day. So, and and the thing is that there's not always a right answer to this. Like, this is really like you were saying that you've kind of been on and off meds for a long period of time. Like, it's not necessarily a black and white decision. There might be periods of time in your life where meds are really helpful. And there Mm -hmm. might be other periods of time where you find that, you know, things are going pretty well. I don't really need them. Yeah. That's the thing that, so I have bipolar disorder and that's the thing is that sometimes I think people think you go on meds and you stay on meds forever or you go off meds and you're done and you're cured. And even within bipolar disorder, like I will probably have to stay on meds forever. But even within that, we've fluctuated in like, okay, you're feeling more depressed. So we're going to up your, your sertraline, line or you are having trouble sleeping. So, you know, we're going to go down on like there, there's more leeway than I think people understand. Do you find that people, they think they're going to find one dosage, one med, and they're never going to have to change. And if they do have to change, it's like a failure. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's what I was, and you said it so well, like that's what I was trying to get to with that. There's no magic pill. Like Mm -hmm. really, I think we have to think about mental health and mental health treatment as like, this is a progress, you know, this is a relationship. This is a process. Like the best thing is if you can find a psychiatrist who is really working with you as a partner where you're kind of over the course of time looking at, okay, what are my symptoms like? What we need to dial things up here, dial things down there. It's not a one and done. Here's my magic pill for the rest of my life. If that were the case, um, you know, that would be amazing. But that's anybody that tells you that anyone that tells you that like, or anyone, you know, it's just like the stuff with all this, like wellness and, you know, self-care, like anybody that sort of is selling you here's this really simple solution. Just take this one medication, just do this one workout and your whole life is going to be transformed. Like you need to be really suspicious of that actually. And I do want to say like, even though learning in terms of like depression and anxiety, that maybe it's not as effective as we think. And, and that it tends to be more effective if like, let's say you have 
depression, but you have a lot of like the physical elements of depression, right? That's sort of like if you tend, if you're really tired, then you might see more effects with a medicine then, right? Is that sort of true? So yes, if you're somebody that has like the neurovegetative signs of depression, so you're having a lot of trouble getting out of bed, your appetite has either increased a lot or decreased a lot, you're you're sleeping more or sleeping too little, big changes in energy. Yes, definitely being on an antidepressant is is going to help. But I mean, I, I do still have patients that don't have those symptoms where being on an antidepressant is still going to be helpful. So I think it really is something that you need to look at individually for yourself. Obviously, I forgot to say, I forgot to say my main, my caveat that I say at the beginning, you know, I'm not your doctor. This isn't medical advice. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Make sure to, you know, talk to your own doctor. Cause I think it's always worth investigating and everybody has their own, you know, medical histories and risk profiles and things like that. But for example, somebody that has, let's say an anxiety disorder, like generalized anxiety or PTSD, right? They might not be noticing changes in energy levels or appetite, but they might really struggle with intrusive, anxious Mm -hmm. thoughts, or maybe even social anxiety, right? And in those cases, their functioning might be completely intact. But being on an SSRI, um, you know, SSRIs are called antidepressants, but they're also the first line agents for treating anxiety disorders, even Mm -hmm. though they're called antidepressants. That can still be really helpful because when you have those very sticky, anxious thoughts, you can go in circles for years and years and years in therapy, and it's not going to work unless you have some help from medication too. What would you say to someone who's listening, who says, well, if I go on meds, I'm not going to be my real self? Yes, absolutely. That is such a common fear. And my answer to that is depression and anxiety are what rob you of your real self. Being on medication, being on the right dose of the right medication should bring you closer to yourself. You know, you should feel more like yourself when you're on the right medication and at the right dose. And if you're on medication and you don't feel like yourself, if you feel foggy, if you feel tired all the time, then you need to talk to your doctor because maybe you're not on the right medication or maybe you're on too high of a dose. The one caveat that I will say with this is that, you know, I, I treat my practices in Washington, DC. So I have a lot of patients who are, you know, very high functioning overachievers. You know, I know a lot about that myself. (laughs) Um, and you know, and I've struggled with depression and anxiety in my past too. So I get what this feels like, but anxiety, especially if you're someone who's type A, anxiety can be a motivating factor for you. So when you go on medication for anxiety, part of it is like learning who you are when you're not driven by your anxiety. And I always say to my patients, like, if you don't like that person of who you are, when you're not driven by your anxiety, then we can come down on the medication. Like you don't Mm -hmm. have to, like, this is your decision, right? Like I'm not forcing you to take medication. I'm not forcing you to come talk to me, right? If you decide that you'd rather be the person who's, you know, up all night, nervous about the presentation and like panicked and, you know, and and then like hyper functioning as a compensation, like you can decide that, but like try and see what it's like and get to know yourself when you're not hyper functioning because of your anxiety. Yeah. I mean, the fear with bipolar disorder was always like, if I went on medication, I would stop being creative. Yes. Um, And I think I hear that a lot from other people with bipolar disorder. And I, I think that's a a little bit of a toxic view because you're only able to do your best work when you 
are clear headed, like when you're not worried that you are going to kill yourself, when you're not worried that you, you know, you can't eat and now you've given yourself a migraine and all this, you know, I say yourself and I'm talking about me. Uh, But, you know, I think people don't realize that once their mental health is like eased a bit with medication, you might actually find out who you really are. Right. And especially with bipolar disorder, because I, I think that's a really common fear, right, of being on medication with bipolar disorder, because when you're in that manic phase or when you're hypomanic, just the productivity can be so seductive, but yeah. you don't remember the cost of that high is the crash mm-hmm. <laughs> and is the depression, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's all connected. And to be able to make that link, I mean, that's hard, especially if you're somebody that gets diagnosed in your 20s and you're kind of looking at, oh my gosh, what does this mean for, for my creative life? But, um, but being on the right medication and having the right team can make all the difference in terms of making those decisions. Can we talk a little bit about like how we said with anxiety, OCD, depression, how you might go on and off medication, but how that's really not advised if you're bipolar or schizophrenic and how like for those, those disorders, especially the medication is a really crucial component of treatment. No, I think you should do what I did, which is go off it in 2016 and not tell anyone. That ended (laughs) so well for me, you guys. Like, I really think I recommend it. I do not recommend it. Well, I don't know what happened in 2016, but... Exactly. And, and it's because the risk, the risk of the illness is so there is just so much more destructive yeah. being off medication. And, and the same could be true if you're somebody that has severe depression or severe anxiety to the point where you've had to be hospitalized before to the point where you have, you know, let's say made suicide attempts or things like that. Bipolar and schizophrenia are more severe, can be more severe illnesses and they have a cyclic pattern. So going off of medication can be even more destructive. But the thing is that when there's a decompensation, it's not, we're not just thinking about the biology. We're also thinking about how does that impact all of your relationships? How does that impact your ability to hold down a job? Right. Mm -hmm. And we know, obviously, when you have a decompensation, it's not good (laughs) for your relationships and your ability to function. So all of those things, it's really hard to come back from. We got some questions on our Instagram for you. And a few of them were really interested in like side effects. And so, you know, when we were talking about going on and off meds, like obviously going on my bipolar medication, there was some side effects. And then coming off it. What a ride. But um, the with OCD and, and depression and sort of regular SSRIs, you know, what's the deal if someone's super scared of having side effects going on it and then having side effects going off of it? And what can happen? What can happen? Yeah. So it, with SSRIs, there's kind of two groups of side effects. So there's kind of temporary side effects that you can experience when you first start a medication. And those are usually in the majority of people, those are going to be pretty benign and they're going to be pretty short lasting, like on the order of a couple days. So things like maybe having a headache, having some lightheadedness, changes in energy, maybe a little bit of nausea, maybe a little yeah, like bit of gastro, diarrhea, yeah. yes, <laughs> GI stuff. Right. And you can mitigate that a little bit by making sure to take the medication with food. Um, again, it shouldn't last more than a couple days, but usually if you're somebody who does have side effect, those types of side effects, when you start the medication, you'll probably notice again, having them each time you go up on the dose. Um, mm-hmm. if you do go up on the dose. 
The other category of side effects with SSRIs are not transient. So, so this is sexual side effects is really the biggest. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's sort of the number one reason I see in my practice for people coming off of SSRIs. More than half of people that take an SSRI are going to have sexual side effects. And for women, that's going to be decreased libido, so lower sex drive, and then trouble with orgasm. Typically, if you have depression or if you have anxiety, you're not going to have a great sex drive (laughs) because anxiety does that too. But the orgasm issue usually is not as commonly related to anxiety or depression. So if you're having problems with orgasm, that usually is more prominently linked to the SSRI. The good news is that once you come off of the SSRI, all that comes back. So it's not like it's gone forever. Yeah. But while you're on the the SSRI and that's one of the side effects, it's hard, man. It's hard. It is hard. Or rather it's not hard. Uh, (laughs) Or rather it's hard, but it's not coming. And so like, if it's something that you're going to be on for a while, you know, or you're going to, or something you maybe want to be on for a long time, There's a world in which you can say to your psychiatrist, like, hey, I can't come. Can somebody do something about this? Yeah. Can we change meds? Can we change? Yes. And don't feel like that's a stupid, like, ask, you know? No, that is a conversation that I have all the time with my patients. Because again, like I said, this is the most common reason people come off of antidepressants. It's one of the most common side effects. And so if you're seeing a psychiatrist and they have you on these medications and they're not asking you about it, then you should be telling them. So it, it just depends on your doctor and it depends on what you're comfortable with. So, you know, if you're somebody who has mild symptoms, the other thing is you could switch to a different SSRI. Just because you have these symptoms or side effects with one SSRI doesn't mean that you're going to have them with all of them. Some of the newer SSRIs have less less risk of the sexual side effects. So medications like Vibrid, Lubox tend to be a little bit better. Sometimes it's a pain in the butt to get insurance to cover the newer ones and you might have to try all the old ones first. So that's you know frustrating. Sometimes we add other medications alongside the SSRI. So there's things that you can do, but yes, absolutely. It should be a conversation with your doctor and you should be kind of, you should feel like you can bring this up. And yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about like the adding of medications, right? So, you know, I recently went through that where I've gained a lot of weight on on my medicines and and I was sort of talking to my psychiatrist about it. And, and so she wanted to add a medication on it. And like, it got to a place where I felt like it was too much. It was too much medications. And I actually made the decision a few weeks ago to, to go off my meds and to sort of see, see where I'm at. And so what do you do if somebody is like worried about that the solution is always just adding, adding medication? Yeah, that's a good, good question. And I am definitely somebody in my practice that I'm, I'm pretty conservative with medication. I don't love the idea of adding another medication to counter the side effects of Mm -hmm. one medication, but sometimes that's the, sometimes it it really depends on the patient, right? Like I'll have some patients that are like, no, you know what? I don't care. I'm fine with adding another medication because, you know, I I want my sex drive back. I want my orgasms back and that's fine for me and I want to do it. And then I have other patients where another side effect of SSRIs can be night sweats Mm. where, you know, it's really kind of more like, you know what? I get night sweats once a week. It's not that bad. I'm fine with it. I really don't want to add something else. You know, sometimes the, the medications that you might be adding to counter the side effects of the SSRIs can come with their own side effects. Right. 
right? So then we say, you know, well, let's try switching to something else, or maybe this is bearable, or maybe it's not, you know, the benefits of the SSRI are really outweighing this Mm -hmm. side effect. And I think it's completely fair. I mean, obviously I don't know you and I don't know your medical history, but, (laughs) but I think it's reasonable if you're making the decision with your doctor and you're having a conversation and you're saying, look, the weight gain's really impacting me. The weight gain's impacting my mood, how I feel about myself. I think I'd like to try coming off and, and st- you know, obviously still seeing you and keeping close tabs and making sure that things are going okay, but let's see what that's like. It wasn't just that. It's so interesting. I also, I think I'm much hotter on my medications. And so, you know, now that like after having to live through a summer with masks on my face, like that was a struggle. (laughs) I think I got to a point where I felt like, you know, I've been on meds now for the last four years or so. I feel like I have had that window of opportunity where my brain now functions in a completely different way than it did before I was on this last round of meds. I like have learned how to think in a different way, in a healthier way. I have the tools to combat my OCD. I was like, you know, I think that I want to see if if I need them because at a certain point, I think when I went on them, the side effects were worth it because I needed the medication and mm-hmm. I didn't have those abilities to think that way. I never had gotten to a place where I knew how to think in the way that I think now. And now that I do, I'm, I'm very, like, the experiment is, will I be able to maintain that without mm-hmm. the help of the medication? And, you know, my psychiatrist was sort of like, well, I don't, you know, because I got my OCD when I was so young, it's, it's, most, it's biologically based and that, that tends to be when medication really helps you. I think in the past, I felt, very much like, well, if I can't succeed in going off of meds and that's a failure, mm-hmm. whereas now it's like, this is an experiment. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I just don't know. And why not do it, you know, under supervision and see how I feel. And I said to her, there's like, a, and I'm sure you know this, there's probably a very high chance I'll have to go back on meds if I ever do give birth, because I have a feeling that will change things for me and I'm postpartum. You know, yeah. And yeah. like, but just like, I think this idea of that, like what Gabby was saying that it's flexible, that you can mm-hmm. work with your psychiatrist and you don't, you don't have to get, get trapped in one decision or another. And you can go up and down on certain meds and go off. And we added Seroquel recently when I was super depressed, we upped the searcher line. Like it's a conversation, right? It's an ongoing conversation. Yeah. I think. And I think I used to really feel like like when I went off meds, I like made this decision to go off meds and I was like 21. And I was mm-hmm. like, I don't need meds anymore. And I think back then I saw it as like, like a sign of pride that I had done this. Mm-hmm. And now I'm trying much more to have just like this point of view of like, let's see. And like, if I realized that like they were helping me more than I thought that they were, then I'll go back on. I think like we're taking away the moral value mm-hmm. of like being on meds or off meds is helpful. Yeah, we had a question from a listener that was um, asking you about they have, fam- you know, family and friends who are worried about the long-term effects of their antipsychotic and think that they, you know, meds are terrible for you and they, you know, they want them to just handle it on their own. And so like, how do you um, handle like family or friends or stigma being like, you shouldn't be on these meds, like they're, they're bad for you. And just this idea that like, we don't quote unquote, know the long-term effects of them. Yeah. This person's like family and friends are giving them a real hard time. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's tough. Like the first piece that I would say is like, this is your life. 
right? <laughs> why did they, why did they get to have an opinion and give you that opinion? So I think part of this is like you, this person that's, you know, asking the question, like, I would say like, looking at how can you set some boundaries and set some limits with these family members so they understand, hey, look, I'm not asking you for your opinion. I'm making these decisions with my doctor Mm -hmm. and it it doesn't impact you. Whether or not I am on a medication does not impact you. Again, like all of this stuff is an ongoing decision over the course of your life. It's not black or white. Also, we're always balancing risks. So how bad is your bipolar disorder? What are the risks if you were to go off medications? Are you going to lose your job? Are you going to be, you know, um, gambling away all of your money? Are you going to be at a safety risk? Right? So, so yes, you know, the medications that we have for bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, things like atypical antipsychotics, typical antipsychotics, they can have really severe side effects and they're not great side effects. And so it's not like, psychiatrists are like, we love prescribing these medications. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's more just like, these are the tools that we have right now for these illnesses to mitigate the risk of some pretty devastating outcomes personally and for families. And so it's always a balance of like, what is, how bad has it gotten without medication? And let's prevent that from happening again. You know, I think it's really easy for somebody to sort of armchair themselves these opinions after reading a couple articles online and being like, oh my God, you know, you shouldn't be doing this, but that person's not living your life. I remember I had a bipolar patient a couple of years ago who, I guess maybe more than a couple of years ago at this point, but she was, you know, she's really high functioning, a lovely woman. And she was like very kind of, you know, yoga teacher, like very holistic, like do not want to be on medications, like that type of thing, very crunchy, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> but she ended up in my office and, and, you know, she, I was just like, like, let's think about your life. You know, she was in her mid forties at this point. And it was like, let's think about how your life has gone, like not being on medications and like all of these different cycles that you've been through and huge changes and traumas. And like, that can be your life. Absolutely. Or if you're on medication and then we, you know, kind of think about the Mm -hmm. times that you've been on medication where you, she's been able to kind of like sustain relationships and have balance and have stability. It's like, you get to decide that, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. In terms of long-term effects, it's like, okay, we don't know the long-term effects. We know that the short-term effect is you spend all your money in Vegas. So, (laughs) (laughs) and also I think going, well, I should be able to cure this just with yoga. I should be able to cure this just with meditation um, and a crystal and whatever. They they go together. They have to go together, right? Right. But I will say that meditation and exercise are proven to have similar effects on the brain as medication, right? Yes, but the caveat there is for mild depression for mild. or anxiety. Right. So mm-hmm. if you have depression or anxiety that's to the level of moderate severe where you know, it's impacting your functioning. You can't get out of bed, you know, Mm -hmm. then it's, you can be doing as much yoga as you want. And that's not gonna. Talking to my psychiatrist about going off of my medication. She's checking in to make sure that I am exercising because in a way that does fill in, that does do some of the work that the medication was doing. Obviously not not for me when it's severe, but but (laughs) they're different disorders. You know, know, I know. Someone asked about comorbidities and like, what do you do when a patient has both, you know, anxiety, depression, and also ADHD or something like that? Like, how do you go about treating that? 
Yeah. I mean, that's a really complicated question. And most of my patients have comorbidities, right? right? So it's something that's really common, right? And I think, you know, the hope is that 20 or 30 years from now, um, psychiatry as a field will have more data in that we won't have to put all of these different labels on people and we'll be able to say, like, here's the brain circuitry that's impacted, Mm -hmm. right? Like, this is the brain circuit. Right. As opposed to being like, you have OCD and you have ADHD and you have depression and you have, right. Um, you know, the good news is that a lot of the, we use a lot of the same medications, right? right? Like I was saying earlier, antidepressants, they're called antidepressants, but we use them for depression. We use them for anxiety, you know, depression and anxiety are, are extremely common to experience when you also have ADHD, right? So a lot of the medications can be used across diagnoses. But again, this is sort of about being able to have, like, I feel like we kind of keep coming back to it. You need to be able to have a clinician who you can have a conversation with because there's going to be times where we're looking more closely at your depression. And then there's going to be other times in your life where we're really looking more at like, what is your executive function? Like, how can you, what is your decision-making like, or, you know, how organized are you, you know, just depending on what's going on for you in your career or in your work life. So over the course of your, your life, really, there's going to be different kind of shifts in focus in terms of the treatment and what we're doing with the medication. And what about if someone is preparing to have children? You know, like one of my best friends is is slowly going, you know, she's not planning to have kids for a few years, but she's already kind of slowly going down on her meds in preparation for that. Like, are people able to stay on certain medications when they're pregnant or does, do most people end up having to go cold turkey? Like what it, what's sort of the thought on that? Pregnancy and the postpartum period are an incredibly vulnerable time for <laughs> um, people that give birth. And the reason for that is is pretty multifactorial. Part of it is hormones, right? There's a huge, huge hormone shift that happens when you're pregnant. And then when you give birth, and then also there's the sleep deprivation that happens when you have an infant. So one of the biggest risk factors for having postpartum depression or having postpartum anxiety is any prior life history of depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder. So automatically, if you've had a history in the past, like your phantom sounds like your friend is it's great that she's preparing and she's thinking about it because really what you want to be able to do is talk to your psychiatrist ahead of time. So you can look at all the medications that you're on and see if there's any that you need to come down in the dose or wean off of. The good news is that the vast majority of medications that we prescribe are low risk in pregnancy. So things like Soloft, Prozac, all the SSRIs, um, with the exception of Paxil, not to get like too technical, but you know, the vast majority of the SSRIs are really low risk to be on and reduce the risk of having postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety. So if you're somebody who's had moderate to severe depression or anxiety, or if you've been on medications in the past, and if you've gone off of them, you've gone off your SSRI and you've done significantly worse, then it's usually lower risk to stay on the medication than mm-hmm. to go off. Because wow. we know that untreated depression and anxiety in pregnancy has uh, is linked to adverse outcomes in mom and in baby. So it's linked to worse obstetric outcomes and then also can impact baby's cognitive and emotional development and things like that. So yeah, so in a lot of cases, that means staying on medication. And then also even with bipolar disorder, because people that have bipolar disorder are at higher risk for postpartum psychosis, which is a very scary clinical emergency that nobody ever wants to see happen. So typically we recommend that people with bipolar disorder 
stay on their medications. And there's mm-hmm. some that medications like mood stabilizers and atypical antipsychotics that are safer to be on. So if anybody's listening out there with bipolar disorder, you know, make sure to find what's called a perinatal psychiatrist, which is what I am. So psychiatrists that specialize in prescribing medications in pregnancy and are really well-versed in all the latest data and research. Because one of the things that's really unfortunate is that our field of psychiatry, you know, for it's only over the past decade that people have recognized pregnancy as post and postpartum as, you know, right. kind of a real thing. So mm-hmm. in the past, people used to say, no, you have to go off your medications. You have to just stop. And so there are a lot of psychiatrists out there that are not up on the data and unfortunately will tell pregnant women that they need to stop. So if you're, if you're listening and, and you have a psychiatrist that's telling you that definitely reach out and try to see somebody that specializes. And there's an organization called postpartum support international. Their website is www.postpartum.net. They have a whole provider list. Um, it's state specific. So you can search based on your location and they also have a free hotline that your doctor can call to consult with somebody like me who can kind of run through the medications and, you know, reassure them and and help fill them in. So that's an awesome resource for anyone that's listening. That's so helpful. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was still under the belief that, you know, I knew Zoloft that you could stay on, but I was still thinking that you had to get off almost all meds. So to understand that that's not true, I think is so helpful and important because like you said, pregnancy is going it, like hormonally. To, to, it's the scariest time to not be on meds, I <laughs> yeah. would think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. In terms of like, you spoke about this a little bit at the beginning, but this idea of like my issues are external. If the pandemic wasn't happening, I wouldn't be this depressed. And so then does it even make sense for me to go on meds or is this like, quote unquote, a bandaid? Right. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So great question. And I think what you have to realize is that external versus internal is the wrong measuring stick. Mm. It actually doesn't matter if it's external or internal. The thing that actually matters the most is what is your functioning? Like how bad is your functioning? So even if the pandemic, even if it's external and it's all because, you know, you have to sit in your apartment and do zoom all day, (laughs) you know, even if that is the cause of your depression, if it's led to a place where you haven't showered for four days and Mm. you are ignoring all of your friends' texts and you're not able to get your work deliverables on time, then your functioning is really impacted. It doesn't matter that it's due to the pandemic. It still could meet criteria for depression. So I think, yeah, that's where people get tripped up. And that's where people are kind of like, well, it doesn't make sense for me to reach out because this is a temporary thing. Um, Which I think a lot of people thought last spring, but then Mm -hmm. we found out, oh, I guess, you know, this isn't really (laughs) temporary. (laughs) And then do you think that in in that case, would it be helpful to tell someone who's maybe nervous to, to go on them that like, this can be our short-term plan that let's like, why don't we try this until maybe those external problems are gone and, and then we can always get off or is that not the right messaging? What do you think? Yeah, I think that's good messaging. I think because it is always like, look, none of these decisions are forever. I mean, usually mm-hmm. when we start somebody on medication, it can take anywhere from 
four to six weeks to see a change. So that's the unfortunate thing too. It's a, not an instantaneous solution. So it takes some time to see if the medication is going to start working. Sometimes we, may, we might not get the right medication to start. So you might have to do some switching. Maybe you have side effects, you know, so it's a little mm-hmm. bit of a process. And then once, once you're starting to notice a change and an improvement, then we typically say that you should be on the medication for at least six months to a year in order to prevent a relapse or to right. prevent another reoccurrence. But, you know, I think that, yeah, I mean, it doesn't mean that you need to be on forever by any means. It could be something that can help you get through this period of time. Um, and then once the external circumstances changes and you feel kind of back to yourself, then you can start, you know, continuing under the supervision of your doctor to come down on the dose and come off. Absolutely. And then, you know, if at any other point in your life, you go through a hard time, like, you know, you go through a divorce, you lose your job, like whatever it is, right. Because we all have ups and downs that, you know, that this medication worked for you in the past. So that's Mm -hmm. great knowledge to have for the future if you should need it again. And how do you determine if like, it's time to up your medication? Like, you know, because sometimes we'll be at a stable dose and then it's like with Gabby said, suddenly it's like, maybe I need more, you know, how do you sort of judge that? Yeah. So it's going to be different for everybody. And I think that's something that your doctor should really be able to help you with, like being able to help you pinpoint for yourself. Okay. Like what are the warning signs for me? Like, you know, sometimes a patient say like, you know, normally I really, I love cooking. Um, I love, you know, baking cookies with my kids or whatever it is. And like, when I start to notice that, like, I never want to do that anymore, Mm -hmm. you know, that's a sign to me that something feels a little bit off or like, you know, normally my work is something that really is fulfilling, but all of a sudden I'm really not wanting to engage. So sort of like the places that usually are fulfilling for you or feel pleasurable, if you're not getting that sense anymore, And then of course, also just the the normal type of things that we've been talking about, like issues with functioning, like not being able to get to work on time, not being able to get things done that you need to. With an increase in medication, does that imply you'll have an increase in side effects? I mean, it depends. It's different for everybody. So if you're somebody who had a lot of side effects when you first started the medication, that there could be a greater risk that you would also have side effects each time you go up on the dose, but that's by no means universal. Basically, I learned in school that like this idea that like it's a chemical imbalance in your brain, which is something I grew up hearing all the time is actually not true or has been somewhat discredited. Yeah. Yeah. So originally we thought that it was something like, you know, you just need more serotonin or you need more dopamine. But Mm -hmm. now we know like neuroscientists are kind of understanding that this is actually a brain circuitry issue. So this isn't about just one you know, increase in increasing a neurotransmitter. It's actually much more complicated than that. And what we think, and I'm not a neuroscientist, so I'm not somebody who can kind of go into all the details of the brain circuitry, but it's essentially that people who have depression or anxiety or bipolar disorder, when they are stressed, when they have an external stressor or an internal stressor, their brain responds differently. The circuits uh, are activated in different ways than people that do not have depression or do not have anxiety or bipolar disorder. And so the medications are working on that circuitry. It's not as simple as just saying, we're turning up the volume on serotonin or we're turning up the volume on norepinephrine. And a lot of times we don't even understand necessarily why a certain medication is having such positive effects. 
Mm-hmm. Like we like we don't understand how it's working, but we know yeah. it does work. Yeah. And you know, it kind of reminds me. And one of the things that I love about psychiatry is that it is such, um, you know, we kind of live in this gray zone. I had a patient a couple of years ago who she was, you know, postpartum and she had postpartum depression and we had started her on Zoloft. She was doing, she was seeing a counselor. She was going to a support group. Um, she had started taking, you know, walks around the block every day. And her husband came in cause I like to, to see partners as well. And he was like, well, so which one is it? Mm-hmm. Like, what's the thing that fixed her? Mm-hmm. And we're like, well, you know, I can't give you a percentage here. It's just, you know, we had to kind of do all of it. And that's why I, I always get worried when somebody is medicated and they're just being medicated by like their GP, but they're not also in therapy and they're not really like, do you, what are your thoughts on that when people are just getting meds from a GP? Yeah, well, unfortunately, the problem is that there's not enough psychiatrists and most mm-hmm. psychiatrists do not take insurance. So mm-hmm. it's really only a privileged portion of our population here in this country that's able to afford psychiatric services. So the majority of people that are writing prescriptions for antidepressants are our primary care doctors and OBGYNs. And a lot of them do a great job, you know, and, and I think that that's kind of like primary care is sort of like the delivery mode for most people that have depression or anxiety, but the place where I think it's more difficult is, you know, if that first med trial didn't work, you know, when it's not working and they have to switch medications. And I will say to my patients, you know, like we'll work together to get you stabilized on a dose. And if it's, you know, people that have mild depression or anxiety. And once they've been stable for like a year and things are going really well, I'll transfer them back to their primary care doctor. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, and then they can always come back if things go off the rails or it's not working anymore or things like that. So I think that that's a nice option. And before we move on to our new segment, um, (laughs) is there just like any Thing that you feel like we didn't cover or any, any advice you'd want to give to somebody who's on the fence about meds? No, I feel like we covered all the, the main points. Yeah. I can't think of anything else. Okay, great. <laughs> we did a great job, Gabby. <laughs> we do a good job. <laughs> Stick around after the break. We'll be asking three questions. Just between us, it's time for our new segment, three questions. So basically, uh, we set these questions ahead of time because I'm just so curious with mental health professionals, how mental health plays a role in their own lives as well. So the first question we sent is basically, what is something that you wish you had known about mental health when you were younger? Yeah, so I grew up in a, you know, South Asian immigrant family. So mental health was something that really was not talked about. You know, it Mm -hmm. really was not a thing at all in my family growing up. So I think I just wish that it was something that was openly discussed. Like Mm -hmm. it was something that, it, you know, in my family and a lot of South Asian families, it's just something that's in the shadows, right? As like this scary, dark thing. And like, well, why would you go to a stranger to talk about your problems? You know, there's so much kind of shame associated with yeah. kind of like airing your dirty laundry. And it wasn't until I was in medical school that I started going to therapy for myself. And I loved it, you know, and, and for me, what got me into therapy actually is I still remember kind of my, what we call our chief complaints. You know, the reason I went was because I... I didn't know how to have hobbies. Like I didn't know (laughs) what to do if I wasn't studying. And so that was kind of one of the first things that I worked on in therapy. (laughs) 
once you made the switch to psychiatry, did that feel like the right fit, like immediately or did you? Yeah. So, you know, I do women's mental health. And so when I first went to med school, I thought I was going to be an OBGYN because I wanted Mm. to work with women and, you know, but I hated being in the OR absolutely hated it. And I did my psych rotation last. And within the first week of my psych rotation, I was like, these are my people. Like Ah, these people are, (laughs) these people are so weird. You know, they just, they just (laughs) want to talk about like dysfunctional families all the time. I was like, that's what I want to (laughs) do. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. I just started my like family therapy class and I'm like, this is everything. It's so fascinating. (laughs) And then in terms of now, like what is something that, that you're glad you currently know about mental health that you implement in your own life? Yeah. So one of the things that I'm really passionate about is basically dispelling or, you know, I get very riled up about this whole self-care concept because I just feel like self-care is something that is so burdensome, especially for women, you know, doing a, taking a bubble bath, going to a yoga class, as much as I love yoga, that's not going to be the thing that actually fixes how you feel about yourself in the long term. And self-care as it's sold to women right now is, is completely exonerating the system. You know, the way, the reasons that we feel bad is because we don't have great um, mental health support at our jobs. You know, we don't have good childcare. We don't have paid parental leave. Those are the issues that need to be fixed. And you going to a retreat as lovely as that's going to be right. Isn't going to be the thing that fixes all those issues. So I actually just recently sold a a book proposal for a book to Penguin Random House on um, the tyranny of self-care. So um, that'll be coming out. Thank you. It'll be coming out in January, 2023. And I'm writing it right now. And Um, I think for me, that's something that's just been really freeing to kind of like understand how all of the systemic problems that are going on in the world impact us as women. And do you think part of the issue is a misunderstanding of what self-care actually is and that like self-care is also just brushing your teeth? Yeah. Yes. 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 So like the way that self-care is sort of sold to us now is it's this external product that you of course have to buy. And, Mm -hmm. um, it's not that like, you know, the mindfulness apps or the yoga class are bad, but for me, like real self-care is all of the internal decision-making on all of the hard conversations, all the work that you have to do to actually get to the yoga class. So real Mm -hmm. self-care is not a noun, it's a verb. It's all of that internal work, the, the things that you're doing in therapy, right? Like that's the real self-care, learning how to set boundaries, developing a compassionate relationship with yourself, you know, and that's not something that you can really commodify, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. And I think sometimes people are like, they think that they're not doing any self-care and then they feel guilty about that. But like, if you took a shower today, that was self-care. Mm-hmm. If you ate a vegetable, that was self-care, you know? And, and sometimes like the reframing of like, I am taking care of myself, even though right. like blank and blank are making me feel like I'm not because I'm not buying that retreat kind of thing. Right, right. Totally. Right. You are make, still making good choices for yourself. Um, and then our, our final question is, what is something you're still trying to, to implement in your own mental health care? I actually posted on Instagram today about this whole idea of success. I got asked it in an interview a couple weeks ago about kind of like, tell us about your career uh, trajectory, you know, tell us about your success. And I just hate that word success because like, what does it even mean? And I think when I was in my twenties, I equated success with, you know, getting into med school, going to a fancy school, getting good grades, 
but every, every hoop that I jumped through, like every success that I had, I still felt empty. Like I was still comparing myself to everybody else. I was still kind of like trying to keep up with the Jones, you know? And as I've um, gotten older, I recognize that for me, success is like, is in the actual work that I'm doing. So success is like what it feels like to, you know, I, I have this company that I started last year, Gemma, it's the first digital education platform for women's mental health. And I get to collaborate with all these strong brilliant women that are kind of trying to make real change in the world. And that's the fun part. And, you know, figuring out what do I really think, what is real self-care, you know, putting my thoughts on paper and writing this book, like that's like the doing of the work is the Mm -hmm. success. And I know that sounds so cliche and so corny. Um, but I I think, think (laughs) (laughs) but I think like in actually being able to recognize that, and it's taken me a while, you know, uh, but I'm here now (laughs) that it, um, I am able to enjoy it more. And that's something that I'm, I'm constantly like working on because I think in this space of doing media work, it's so easy to get kind of disconnected from your why and, and the values that are driving you. And so I'm always like looking to really stay grounded in the most meaningful things for me. Yeah, it's hard. And, you know, I think with something where you can see either monetary value to mm-hmm. it or you can see follower counts, then it's like you get obsessed with those numbers versus like just the fact that like you're actively writing a book or, you know, like maybe your followers aren't growing, but you still have blank amount of followers right, and they hold right, value. Right. And I'm working on a similar kind of reframe as well, but it's it's definitely helpful. Yes. <laughs> Me too. But yeah, I think seeing it as what you have versus what you don't have is is huge. We're all we're all about gratitude. I'm reading tons of books about Buddhism. Things are looking up over here. And not feeling like it always has to be more, you know. I yeah. think that there's this sense yes. of like, well, if you're not growing, then then you're not succeeding at all. But like you are. <laughs> right. Right. Things are allowed to stay stable. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, this is so wonderful. I think it's going to be so helpful to so many people. And I just, before we let you go, we like to do a very uncomfortable thing where we force our guests to rate their experience being a guest on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, please let us know how, if you had any fun, if you had a terrible time, any constructive <laughs> criticism for us moving forward. <laughs> no, this was lovely. You guys are amazing. I'm so impressed with your wisdom and yeah, no, you guys are great. Like, I don't know how old exactly you are, but I feel like you're a lot younger than me. And I wish that I was as savvy as you were at, at your age. (laughs) We're both like 32. I have, I have at least two more months. Okay. Let me live in my 31-ness for a little bit. (laughs) We just, we both happen to look 12. But, but we are in fact in our 30s well i hope that you take i hope that you take it as a compliment then thank you definitely <laughs> thank you so much for being our guest where can people find more about you yeah absolutely so i am on instagram at women's mental health doc where i post all about everything related to women's mental health and then like i said my company uh is gemma a women's mental health digital education platform. And you can find our courses at www.gemmawomen.com. Amazing. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa D. Montz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. 
To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. Check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam or youtube.com slash show. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. You can also follow at JBU Podcast on Instagram and Allison at, at Emotional Support Lady and at Allison Raskin and me at, at Gabby Road and at BWM Pod, my new Instagram for the Bad With Money podcast. Bye! Forever! <laughs> <laughs>